Before we get started today, I want everyone to know that Strongly Connected Components now has a Patreon, which means that you can help support the production of this show. Patreon is this wonderful service that lets you help support the show by giving a small amount of money whenever a new episode is put up. I it, Even if it's $1, like if all of you gave me $1, that would more than fully support the production of the show and let me keep on doing this for forever. I can just talk to mathematicians and let you hear those conversations forever. So please go to Patreon, search Strongly Connected Components, and support the show. And now... Let's listen to the new episode. Hello, I'm your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 57, brought to you by AcmeScience.com. On today's episode, I'm joined by Talithia Williams, Associate Professor of Mathematics at Harvey Mudd College. We discuss what it was about statistics that drew her to its study. How you can use your body's data to live a better life, and why she spends as much time as she can providing service to underrepresented populations in mathematics. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Strongly Connected Components. Joining me on the show today is Talithia Williams, an associate professor of mathematics at Harvey Mudd College, as well as someone you may have seen uh, give a TED talk about, you know, numbers and, and stats and how, how to use those to, uh, you know, live a healthier life. Uh, Talithia Williams, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Samuel. So I, I wanted to start out by going to, to the very beginning uh, and ask you, what to you was the the importance of numbers when you were growing up? <laughs> yeah, when I was a kid, I was really intrigued by mathematics. And so I kind of, you know, felt like it was easy to change for you. And so I got practice doing a lot of number crunching in my head just to sort of uh, return people their change. And so I think that sort of got me used to thinking about numbers very quickly. And then once I got to, to college, I didn't really think about majoring in math um, until I had a, a um, my AP calculus teacher actually was like, you know, you're really talented in math. You should think about majoring in it. And I was like, oh, why would I do that? But then I, I saw that there was money for, you know, folks to major in, in science and engineering and mathematics. And so, yeah, somebody showed me the money. And so then that swayed me toward uh, toward mathematics. <laughs> so I... I noticed reading a little bit there's uh there's a profile of you where i saw that uh, you you experienced a, a few speed bumps getting to exactly uh where you wanted to go for graduate school correct i i did i did um yeah so so when i finished college i, I applied at rice university to, to their applied math department and and didn't get accepted and so it ended up going into a, a PhD program at Howard in math. It was possibly a good speed bump in the sense that while I was at Howard, I took a statistics course. I took biostatistics and I took a math stat course. 
Um, and so that was sort of what introduced me to statistics and the idea of, of going into statistics. And so I, but I really wanted to be at Rice. I remember that first time I interviewed there when, when I, the, the year I got rejected. And I walked around the campus and I was like, I'm supposed to be here. There's something special about this place. And I just felt like, you know, this was, this was where I was supposed to be. And so I really got that feeling. And so when I, when I didn't get accepted the first time, it just, something just felt strange, like, you know, but I had this, this emotion. And so I applied again. I got a master's at Howard in math, uh, but this time I was open to statistics, and so I applied to the stats department as well. Uh, still got ex uh, rejected from applied math. I got accepted to statistics, and, and so for me that was sort of confirmation that this is actually the area that I was meant to go in in the first place. Perhaps a roadblock. You could also see it as, as, as you know, had I not gone to Howard and not taken statistics, I probably would have gone into applied mathematics and um, you know, we might not be talking today, so <laughs> all things work together for good. <laughs> I, I've 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 had I've had plenty of of speed bumps and things along my course, and I am also quite happy where I have ended yeah. up. <laughs> uh, which which oddly enough is also talking to you right now. So what what was it about statistics that uh, that kind of draws you in? I mean, I I I come at this you know asking as as someone who did study mathematics with you know that mm -hmm. that uh i'm i'm willing to admit now as much as it pains me incorrect kind of diminished view that a lot of mathematicians have of of statistics as as a as a discipline you know especially people like me who studied pure mathematics we also seem to have that diminished view of applied math so so what was it about statistics that that drew you in yeah i i remember I remember distinctly when I was converted. I was taking a graduate level topology course, which is like a pure area of mathematics, and I was taking a, a stats course simultaneously. And I remember in topology, we talked about how, you know, a coffee cup is equivalent to a donut, right? Because you can press it down and reshape it and it has the same form. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and then that same day in statistics, we were looking at birth weight data. And so we were looking at mothers who smoked and, and looking at gestation to see if, you know, a baby's birth weight was affected by smoking mothers, among other, you know, features of them, ethnicity and things like that. And I thought, oh my goodness, like, you know, this is such an interesting question and, 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 you know, this is something I'd want to pursue. And all of a sudden we were looking at the data and then we fit a model and then we showed like, yes, if you smoke, you know, you tend to have lighter birth weight babies. And it was just sort of like this light bulb went off that, you know, here was something that was, that I felt was perhaps more useful than a coffee cup and donut <laughs> analogy. Um, but just on that day, I just sort of felt like, it was it was so applicable, and I could just sort of see all these areas where statistics would be useful to lots of people in their real life. You know, oh, do, you know, do smoking mothers know that they shouldn't smoke? Well, you would think most people do, but here's data that shows that you know what it affects your baby, and here's a negative way that it affects your baby, and so therefore you should stop. And I guess I saw a connection with statistics to the broader population that I didn't see in my topology course uh, at, at the time. And so that's really what drew me into statistics over mathematics. I was doing well in mathematics and, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that I didn't like it and it wasn't that I didn't see it as, as also beautiful. It's just that I sort of saw statistics as being more, more applicable to 
to, to everyday people. And so when I talked to my, my family, you know, or, or, or grandparents, I felt like I could, I could talk to them about things that I was doing in my stats course and they would, they could understand like, Oh, that sounds great. And Oh, I could see there's a need for that. And God forbid, I try to explain anything I did in topology to any of them. Oh, well, one thing, one thing that you, you do seem to be quite good at is explaining, explaining these, these statistical concepts and, and how it can help people as, as evidenced by the, uh, the Ted talk that you gave, which now has as of what, as of today, 929,307 total views, which I will guarantee is more than the amount of total listens this episode will get. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> Wait till I put it on my Facebook page. Oh, well, well, that's that's true. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you. Uh, and I want to welcome all million of you that are now listening. <laughs> and so you you kind of kept this whole also of of how to um of of staying on as you said birth weights before and and this was all about uh, how to own your own body's data and and so it's what was it specifically about that that kind of data that kind of statistics that you know kept you involved the whole time yeah because a, a lot of a lot of that data is split up into ethnicities and i remember when i when i got really excited was seeing how different ethnic groups, um, you know, how, how how diseases or or how things affected them in 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 different ways, and so that was another, I think, way that got me engaged in statistics a lot differently. Is you know, I could I could look at uh, uh, data on diabetes and see that it disproportionately affects African Americans, and so why is that? You know, is it genetic? Is it diet? You know, what are these other things? And so. For me, it was really exciting to to take issues that I'm concerned about, you know, e- you know, even within the African American community, and then start to try to understand why is it that data, the data reflects this about this particular population, or why is it that women are more likely than men to experience a certain side effect to a particular drug, and so for me, being able to be an underrepresented woman and be passionate about issues that address us, I think also, you know, uh, led me to want to look at um, that type of data, especially, um, you know, in, in my biostats course and, and in those courses. And so, yeah, that was that was sort of what sort of really drew me into into the discipline. Uh, I, I saw the first, uh, sadly, only the first half due to when my plane was leaving, but the first half of your talk at the joint meetings, and you started that by asking the audience what type of data and, and metrics we were all tracking about ourselves be you know Fitbit stuff sleep things so what what do you sort of see coming from the future where since all of us are now collecting so much data about ourselves yeah I, I think in the future there will be more apps that will help people interpret their data currently is you know, the the apps do a really great job of sort of re- reporting to you this is what your temperature was or your weight was or here's what you ate a lot of those apps don't speak to each other and so you know you can't make the connection that you know when i eat a donut for breakfast <laughs> my workout heart rate really isn't as as efficient and so um rarely do you see all of that data in one source or, and and rarely is it speaking to each other and so i think you know, apps that sort of that that not only allow you to maybe put log all your data in one place, but also can start to make connections between, you know, here's what we observed in your sleep pattern when you had this type of diet, 
when, when you eat sugary sweets, you lose on average an, an hour of your sleep time. And so I think that takes a more sophisticated analysis. And it's also some liability there, right? Because as you start to tell people things from their data and they make changes, then you're sort of perhaps liable for those changes. And so I think that's the reluctance to interpret people's data and give them feedback because, you know, you were then saying, after this analysis, this is what we've noticed. And so um, if we could somehow get around finding a way to, to interpret people's data or help them interpret their data, right? Here's a, here's a tool that you can load all of your whatever your favorite device is, load all that data here, and here are some metrics that, we can use, that you can use to sort of interpret that data. I think that's where it's going. You know, one, one of the graphs we looked at was uh, happened to be Fitbit data, which I don't endorse in, in any product, but happened to be a woman's Fitbit data, just, just steps per day, and she started to look at days of the week. You know, do I take more steps on particular days of the week? And so right now it's not really easy to look at that data. I think she had to export it and then, you know, um, put it in a programming language and plot it and things like that. But it would be great to know if, if I'm walking during lunch, do I get more steps in on Friday or Monday or on the weekend? Um, I think that's what people want, and that's the direction that it's going to go in. Otherwise, you just have a lot of data that you can't really do anything with. And so it seems pointless almost to collect so much data and not be able to answer very rich questions about it. You know, besides, yes, I worked out. Yes, here was my heart rate. Another thing that my husband and I do, uh, we collect our heart rate data. So when we work out, and, and in particular, he plays racquetball. And so, you know, he was able to start charting his heart rate data versus the games that he played. And so he noticed for games that he won, his heart rate was sort of in these higher heart rate zones than in games that he lost. And, you know, while that sort of seems intuitive, the difference was very subtle. You know, it showed up in his data, but it wasn't, it wasn't like for this game I was walking around and this game I was running. You know, it was a lot more closer than that. And so just even knowing that gives you an idea that you could perhaps perform better. Perhaps if sports teams, you know, if NFL teams charted or, or, you know, I mean, they have this very strict diet, right, and how does this diet affect performance, game day performance, right? And so if I could get uh, NFL team players' heart rate data and give them different types of diet, right, maybe I, I want you to try a raw vegan diet, you know, which most players would totally object to because, no, it doesn't have any meat in it. But maybe, you know, raw vegan is really going to give you the nutrients you need to have explosive energy on the field. I'd love to be able to sort of do that type of experiment. Like, here, eat this, all this raw stuff, get full on it, and then I want to see your performance the next day at the game. And, and is it different from when I give you a big piece of steak, which has yummy protein, but is probably going to weigh you down, right? And so, I don't know that we look at data that critically, and, and I think that would be a great direction to go in, is to start to put those pieces together and use it to make better informed decisions. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about the cataract work that you've done? Sure, sure. I have a colleague uh, in Africa, Susan Llewellyn, and uh, she's an ophthalmologist, and she came to me uh, maybe about six years ago now and had recently gotten some survey data, it was, it's called RAB data, Rapid Assessment of Avoidable Blindness. And so this data was collected in different countries in Africa and, and, and basically recorded, it, it recorded the uh, visual acuity for people who were 50 and older in those areas. And so 
it recorded whether or not they had 20-20 vision or, or whatever. And so uh, she had this data and she wanted to know, is there a way for, for, for us to know the rate at which people develop cataracts because uh, this, is, this has been an, an initiative of the World Health Organization. They have a Vision 2020 program where they'd like to eliminate of all issues of avoidable blindness by the year 2020. And so she had access to, to seven data sets uh, where they'd gone in and surveyed these different populations and she wanted to know could I use this data in order to estimate the rate at which those communities were developing cataract. And so that's what we did. Uh, me and, and a couple Mud, Harvey Mudd students uh, developed a statistical model that looked at that data and then projected the rate at which those those groups would develop cataract over, over the next several years and wrote a couple papers about that. And so now that model is available uh, to anyone who has RAB data that, that you know they'd like to estimate for for their particular survey data. So so one thing I noticed going through going through your CV is the amount of different service things that you do is much much higher number than than most mathematicians that I whatever do you mean Samuel? <laughs> uh, much much higher uh, number of, of service uh, kind of uh, positions and and things that you do than than most mathematicians as and I just uh, I was hoping that you could speak a little bit to both both why you do so many service things but also what what you are getting out of of putting forward the service. All right, so so why service, and then what I get out of it. So uh, a, a lot of the service that I do is is very specific to uh, underrepresented groups in the mathematical sciences, and so I get really excited about opportunities to broaden participation in the mathematical sciences, whether that's reaching out to you know first generation students or uh, African American and, and Hispanic women in STEM, so things like that. I I mean I. I remember what got me excited about going to get a PhD and it, and it wasn't anything that had to do with my ability. You know, even though I was I was strong in math, I was strong in other subjects too and I I first got excited about getting a PhD when I met an African American woman that had a PhD in math. And all of a sudden it became a reality that oh, I too could go and get a PhD in math and that's something that 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 we do and that we you know, we we're good at. And so a lot of my service has revolved around a desire to expose other young girls to examples of women, especially women in, in science and technology and engineering and mathematics, who have been successful, who, you know, who've gone on and gotten advanced degrees and, and provide opportunities for them to connect. And so uh, each year at Harvey Mudd, I've done a, a Sacred Sisters Conference, which is a conference for African-American and Hispanic girls, uh, middle and high school girls. And so we bring them to campus and, and we have different panel discussions and we bring, you know, women uh, from all over the Southern California area who have PhDs or MDs or, or bachelor's degrees or computer scientists and really give those young ladies an opportunity to, to meet those women. And, and, and it's only one day, but it, it gives them an image of who they can possibly become. And so that's why I do the service is because I remember that for me, all I needed was that image. And so when I was struggling in grad school, I would remember, oh, so-and-so did it. I just need to push through. I think for, for a lot of these girls, just knowing that there's someone who's done it can, can help to really solidify that dream for them. 
what I get out of it, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like paying it forward, right? And so I think for me, just to, to see those light bulbs go off, to see young girls who look like me, who who come up to me and say, I, I've never met a black woman in a statistician before, but now that I meet you, wow, that's so awesome. And, you know, I, I can do this too. Or, or you know, folks who say, I saw, I saw your TED Talk and I'm going to go write my own TED Talk. You know, I'm like, you should, you know, let me help you with it. And so I think it's great to to be able to give back in that way and to, to, to see people, just, just to see people respond to the type of service that I do and to see how it helps them is really what I get out of it. Uh, beyond just letting people see that that there are people who look like them in mathematics, in science, and, and giving them sort of that role model or just knowing that that possibility is there, do are there are there other sorts of ways that you uh, currently see a, as a way that we can broaden participation in the mathematical sciences beyond people who just look like me? Oh, gosh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, when, when I think about part of what made me successful, so while having that image was important, it was also important to have graduate instructors and advisors who were affirming and I I can not, I can I can list people who have who you know have dropped out of grad programs or who have left mathematics because no one has affirmed them and and so I think you know you can get affirmation from your high school teachers or you know your your entry level college algebra instructor uh, I think as professors we need to do a particularly good job of affirming people who look different from those who are the majority in our field. Because, uh, you know, even as a, as a graduate student, I, I'm, I was always aware that I was a minority, right? Because just, just showing up to class made me aware of my gender and my race. And so anything that a professor did to reaffirm my presence there just made me feel so much better than I think my office mates need it, right? They didn't need it. Hey, glad you showed up today. You know what I mean? And that's not what I need it, but just, just, Hey, that was a great homework set you turned in. Like just, just little, little things just made me feel like I was a part of the community because I just sort of looked like an outlier all throughout uh, graduate school. And so I think as, as professors, we can, we, we have to be intentional in, reaching out to underrepresented groups in order to broaden participation. And it's easy to say, I treat all my students equally, <laughs> which is great. But I argue that if, you know, if I'm coming into the classroom as, a, as an African-American woman, I already feel like there's, a, there's something different about me being there. And so once you connect with me and reach out to me and say, hey, you deserve to be here, you're great, you're such a strong student, all of a sudden I really feel like I, I'm a part of this community. And, I, and I, I don't think we do that enough. And so we, we lose people who feel like, oh, this isn't where I'm supposed to be because there, there aren't any of me in here. There are no women in this class. What am I doing here? And, and, and that's what 18 to 23-year-olds to think. You know, I mean, it's, it's not logical. And I can look back on it and say, well, that was crazy. But at the time, that was how I felt. I'd walk in and look, there are all these guys in here. What am I doing here? Right? And, so, and that's not, I'm not ever going to voice that to my instructor. I'm not going to say, you know, why am I the only black person? Because, you know, I just sort of say, oh, maybe this just isn't for me. 
And so I think instructors and professors can do a lot to reach out and say, no, 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 you're supposed to be here, and I want to make sure that you stay here. So how can I make sure that you're succeeding in this environment? One thing I, I also noticed is that you uh, and this and uh, you are both a, a edge scholar and an edge mentor. And I recently talked to the uh, founding directors and, and the current uh, co-directors of the edge program as well. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit uh, about your perspective on the program from having been an edge scholar. Oh, edge is awesomeness. Yeah, I so yeah, I, I, I was in the edge program in the summer of 2000, the summer after I graduated from Spelman. And, you know, the first thing it did was, was build community. So all of a sudden I was, I met these women from all over the country who were going to graduate programs all over the country. And so immediately I, I, I had a group of women who, who I was connected to. And we also took, took graduate level classes over the summer. And so we got this preparation for graduate school, this, this crash course in, in graduate level work, which was really fun, but also challenging. One thing that I've been able to get out of the program is that network of of women. And so the EDGE program has grown to the point where there are multiple people who've gone through the program, who've who've come back as graduate mentors. I came back and mentored one summer, and then who've come back and hosted the program and, and taught in the program. And so there's really this rich weaving of women at all stages who are now a part of this program. And so even even if, if a young woman's at a graduate program that's not going well, she can email the listserv and all of a sudden we're like, hey, all right, that's okay, get your master's and, and apply here. And or or I've got a postdoc position here and you know we'd love to get applications from from edgers. And so it's a really rich and supportive community of of um, not just women, because the edge community is also broad in the sense that there are folks there who are who who support women. But it's great to have that network and that community and that support of women who do really great mathematics. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to to see that program continuing. I'm glad to see that we've started a foundation in order to really make sure that that program is sustained for for generations of women to come behind us. You you've also done. Uh, a lot of consulting work, clinical advising work. You've worked for various acronym companies or acronym organizations like NASA, JPL, NSA, various <laughs> places like that. Uh, so, h- how was it different for you uh, doing this, uh, doing the consulting work or doing the uh, three-letter acronym <laughs> work, uh, than it is doing your your academic and your teaching work? My days are longer. <laughs> As a professor, it doesn't come to an end, right? So I'll I'll probably go home tonight and work on a lecture for tomorrow and read do, do some reading that pertains to some of my research. Whereas, gosh, those great days of working at NASA and the NSA, where your day had to end at five o'clock, and especially the NSA, where you couldn't take your work home because it was top secret and Gosh, that 40-hour work week would almost be a luxury now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but one one thing that I notice about the, the difference is that as a professor, my job, it, it, it expands. And so, you know, it, it might start early and go really late one day. The interaction with students is is often often goes beyond the science. So often I end up talking to students about things in their life that are way outside the realms of my classroom. Definitely my, my time at, 
at NASA and NSA, you know, those eight hours were spent very productively focused on research or, or experimentation. Um, I find that as a as an academic, that time is a lot more fluid, but then it tends to run into the early mornings and into the late evenings. As for a preference, I mean, I, I love what I do now. I love the interaction with, with students and colleagues, but I, I also really enjoyed that time at NASA. It was, it was fun. I mean, it was, it's fun to just say you work at NASA, right? It just makes you sound super smart. The NSA was great. It was great to say, like, I can't tell you what I did today or I'd have to kill you. So I liked working there just to tell people that. I mean, granted, I like to work too, but I'd have to kill you if I tell you what I did. So... It was fun too. Uh, yeah, I I still uh, I still cash in the chip that my grandfather worked at NASA. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it just gives you certain clout, you know. Just if you can't get a table at a restaurant, you know what? I I used to work for the NSA, so <laughs> can I get a table now? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I, that's I. I mean, that's one way to get into Momofuku. I it wasn't. <laughs> That is one way. <laughs> so I, I just I have, I have one one last question for you. If I I mean other than every telling everyone your trick to get get seated at the uh, you know ritziest of, of restaurants without a reservation, uh, what is what's one sort of uh, kind of like stats based or, or or database thing that you would you would suggest an everyday person try to do in order to live a better or healthier life? I'd, I'd suggest collecting some information about yourself. I won't even specify what it is. It might be, you know, depending on your age, it might be something like your blood pressure or your, you know, your, your sugar glucose level or your weight or your temperature. Um, I think the, the more that we understand how our bodies work, we can better understand when they're not working. And I think we miss the crossover between things working well and things not working well until it gets too late. And then we realize, oh, something's really not working right. I should go to the doctor. And then we go to the doctor with, with no information. So it's, it's difficult for our doctor to know when, when this issue or when this crossover occurred into, in, into this downward spiral. And so I'd suggest just something basic. I mean, if it, if it takes you wearing a wearable device and just sort of logging that data because, you know, it, it could be that something that you eat, you might be allergic to and you just might not know it and it shows up a couple of days later. Um, little things like that. I think we can just start to understand ourselves better. It's also great for our loved ones because I, you know, we have, uh, my husband and I have, have aging parents. And so often, you know, when we talk to them and they say, you know, how do you feel today? Well, I don't feel too good. Well, what, you know, and so I'm asking, well, what's your blood pressure? What's your sugar today? And, you know, I'm asking all these detailed data questions. I've, I've let go of the emotion and now I want you to tell me what it was today and tell me what it was the past two weeks. And now I'm going to start to look at it and I'm going to say, oh, mom, it looks like your blood pressure has been going down. Maybe you need to add a little more sodium to your diet or whatever it is, right? Or, you know, let's, let's call your doctor because your pattern looks like this. And so I think the more information that we have that we can share with family and friends, the better our lives will be overall. Well, Talithi Williams, thank you so much for coming on to Strongly Connected Components today. Thank you for having me, Samuel. I've enjoyed it.
And that is all the time that we have for this episode of Strongly Connected Components. If you want to learn more about Talithia Williams, our guest on today's show, please head on over to acmescience.com and find the post, which will give you links and more information and all of that wonderful stuff. And also, don't forget, you can now support Strongly Connected Components on our Patreon. So head on over to Patreon. Uh, just Google it or go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. I'm going to not spell the com part. And search Strongly Connected Components, and you can help make sure that Strongly Connected Components can keep going on indefinitely until I've interviewed every mathematician in the world, which, since there's more that are being taught right now, means that I'll just keep doing this forever. If you have any feedback uh, or you want to suggest a guest or you just want to tell me anything my email is samuel at acmescience.com that is my personal email so please email me i love to hear from you the music i'm talking over right now is from science ctn the music that i talked over in the beginning of the show was the pie song by the band hard and firm off their album horses and grasses uh science ctn you can find over at soundcloud hard and firm you can find by googling hard and firm they're a really funny band. You should probably give them a listen. Strongly Connected Components is, as always, released under Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike license. So please feel free to take my words and mix them up. Make them say whatever you want as long as you credit Strongly Connected Components as where you found the audio in the first place. So, as always, I want to thank you all for listening and, of course, for supporting the Patreon for Strongly Connected Components. And I hope that you all have just the most matherific week of all time. Bye, all. Bye.